Two Saturdays ago, I taught the book of Revelation in one morning, all 22 chapters. And while I was in my preparation, I was looking at the seven churches listed in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 again. Uh, just on the seven churches, I have about 10 commentaries. And I was kind of familiarizing myself once again with these churches. I've been studying them for 35 years. It's kind of a sweet spot, almost a hobby of mine, the book of Revelation. And uh, in the book of Revelation, John is given a divine outline. People are very confused about Revelation. They say it's too difficult to understand. And, you know, therefore we should just not read that one book. It's actually a very easy book to understand. There's 420 references to the Old Testament. So if you know the rest of your Bible, the book of Revelation becomes very easy. And John gives an outline here. Now, John is the Apostle John. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, Jesus loved them all, but John kind of gave himself that nickname, right? And we should all have that nickname, right? We're the disciples that Jesus loves. That's the way you should think of yourself. He's the one who leaned on Jesus' breast. He, he was the first one to run in the tomb. He, he outran Peter. He, he looked at the empty tomb. He saw Jesus die on a cross. And now he's 90 years old. All the other disciples are, have been martyred. And he's on an isle called Patmos. I've been there. It's in the Greek islands. It's in the Aegean Sea. It is beautiful. Tom Hanks vacations there now. But John wasn't on a vacation. He was there because of tribulation, because of preaching the gospel. And it was a penal colony. And just like you and me, I'm sure, like John the Baptist, he was going through his time of doubt. God, I've served you all of my life. Why am I here? Right? We all do that. And then all of a sudden, he gets transported, it says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, that either means it was Sunday or he was transported to the day of the Lord, which I believe that's what happened. The day of the Lord is the most documented time in the Bible. It's a time, a time, and a half a time in the book of Daniel. It's the 70th week of Daniel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's three and a half years of peace, three and a half years of tribulation. And John is transported, and here's the divine outline. If you're in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, John is told to write, 12 times in this book he's told to write, he's told to write the things that thou has seen, the things that are, and the things that will shortly come to pass. The things that thou has seen, verses 13 to 16, he sees the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you go to Calvary Chapel, and if you say this is the book of Revelations, you're either going to get your hand slapped or you're going to buy me a pizza every time you say it. It is not a book of revelations. It is not even what the King James Version has as the header, the revelation of Saint John the Divine. First of all, John wasn't divine, Jesus was. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. No one was blown away more than John who saw Jesus veiled in flesh and now sees him on a white horse and on his thigh it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. What he has seen in chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, is one of the most magnificent, glorious visions and unveilings of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. Feet like brass, eyes like fire, a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The things that are, are the seven churches. Notice they're plural. And then finally, the things that must shortly come to pass. Shortly doesn't mean it'll be quick in time. It means it's the very next thing on God's calendar.
So the things that are, were the seven churches. And they're listed for you there in Revelation. Let me say a few things about these churches. Number one, they were literal churches in that day. Look up on the screen. This is Asia Minor. Ephesus was a mega church. Ephesus was New York City. And all the other churches came out of Ephesus. It was almost a natural postal route. And so these were literal churches, many started by Paul and the apostles, that existed in that day. Notice they were in cities. Has anyone noticed there's been a migration back to cities? Pretty hard not to notice. My aunt just had double knee surgery, so I've been driving down to Philadelphia almost every other day. And I'm driving through neighborhoods I've known all my life, and there's bistros and outdoor eateries and hipsters all over the place. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what has happened? Loft apartments. And if you read, you find out the demographics are shifting. People are moving back to the cities, and it's not just young people. Empty nesters, all types of people are moving back to cities. Cities are cultural. Culture breeds from cities. They're very important. Uh, Tim Keller, who most of us love, uh, you might not realize this, taught at Westminster right here in Philadelphia, went to 10th Presbyterian Church. And it's pretty amazing because 10th Presbyterian Church, back in the 60s and early 70s, was pastored by uh, Dr. Barnhouse, who was known nationwide. He was on the radio. He wrote great commentaries. He was followed by James Montgomery Boyce, who also had like a national ministry. And Tim Keller was in that church. And he realized he would never become pastor of that church. So he packed up, followed God's leading, and went to New York City. Can you imagine the succession that church would have had with those three guys? But he goes to New York City and, you know, 20 years later, great things have happened. Tim Keller said when he got to New York City 20 years ago, 1% of Manhattan went to a Bible-believing church. 20 years later, 5% go to a Bible-believing church. And right now, they're in the middle of a rise campaign where they're joining with other churches. And their goal is in the next 10 years that 15% of Manhattan would go to Bible-believing churches. Can you imagine the culture that could emanate from that city? So these were literal cities that God was working through, and God has always worked in cities. They also represent churches in any age. It's very important. The church at Ephesus, like I said, was a megachurch. Had all the bells and whistles. All the machinery was moving. Jesus said, I've got one thing against you. You lost your first love. Churches can get to this place where everything's running so smooth, they don't even need God or the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, in his rebuke, said, come back to your first love. Remember the passion. Remember your first ways. Now, the second church, Smyrna, was a persecuted church. I've been to persecuted churches. The one I was in Egypt, pastor died. We, were, we visited there twice. He literally was shot to death. And that's what happens in some of these places. People lose their lives. It happened in the early church. It will always happen. There is persecuted churches somewhere in the world right now. Thyatira was the worldly church. Pergamos was the compromising church. Sardis was the dead church. Laodicea was a lukewarm church. In every era of Christianity and any epoch of time, these seven churches will exist. The final thing is, I believe it applies to every believer in every age. This is where it hits home. 
Notice in the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And then he makes it personal. If anyone opens, my father and I will come in and we will dine with them. He makes it personal. Someone here this morning probably has lost their first love. Those fires have need to be rekindled. Some of us here are worldly. Some of us are lukewarm. But what we all long to be individually and as a church is the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3. This was the faithful church. Look at what Jesus says about this church, verse 7 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. And of course, the promises they would be kept from the hour of tribulation that would come upon the entire world. Now, we don't know much about the church at Philadelphia in Asia Minor. We know this. They were smaller than all the other cities. How ironic. That God would take the smallest church and say, you can do great things if you believe that I'm a big God. See, that's the key. It's not how big we are. It's how big we believe God is and what we think he can do. And what really jumped out at me in my study this time was that God had given them an open door. They were an open door church. What's an open door church? It's a church that seizes on God-given opportunities for expansion of ministries. It's when all obstacles seem to be removed and you just walk through, almost like Israel walked through the parting of the Red Sea. I remember years ago where I had a desire to do church in downtown media. I love the media theater. I love the vibe of downtown. And I thought, wow, it'd be great to do church downtown. So we had a guy on staff one time and, and I told him my vision and I said, but let me tell you a few things. We need the school across the street, the media school district. They said, we'll never do church there. Uh, the media theater is an up and running theater. That's another problem. And, uh, so he went out and we started to go through these obstacles. And one by one, all these obstacles fell by the wayside. And there were many more than that. And that's an open door. When you realize God opens the door. Now it's not easy. There's still a difficult path. There's still a dark night of the soul. But you walk through and at the end you say, wow, God, this is you. Uh, when we got there, we called it a brand new day because we had just walked through an open door God has given us. So we want to be an open door church. I hope in your life you're looking for open doors because that's the way God wants us to live. So this morning I want to give you five marks of an open door church. This will apply to our church, wherever you go to church, and your own life. So we'll analyze it on three levels. The first mark of an open door church, and guys, this just came right off my pen. Didn't even have to think about it. Every church I've ever visited, every prevailing church I know, this is number one. They must have a clear and compelling vision. Must have a clear and compelling vision. 
Jesus gave the church its ultimate mission in Matthew 28, verse 19, that we call the Great Commission, when he said, Go therefore in all the world, make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Notice all the words in that mission statement are verbs. Go, teach, baptize, make disciples. We were meant to be a go church. We were meant to roll up our sleeves and get elbow deep in what God was doing. Church has two functions. Reach the lost and then make them disciples. It's the only two things we really do. Everything else is wonderful. The Acts 2 community, the breaking of bread, God adding to the church. It's all wonderful. But at the end of the day, we're reaching lost people and we're making disciples. At C.C. Delco, we've kind of crafted our own little mission statement that says we exist to take individuals on a journey to becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. Just like Jesus said, we want to take newly minted Christians and we want them to experience all that God has for them. We want them to find their gifts, use their gifts, and reproduce. I said it a few weeks ago. Sheep beget sheep, not shepherds. Sheep go into all the world and reproduce as you're in your sphere of influence. What we're doing here as church leaders is creating environment, sizzling summer, Sunday morning, revelation in one day, retreats, as an environment for you to bring the people you're involved with And to see them come to faith. So we need to go where the people are. Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against us. So we want to be a prevailing church. We want to walk through open doors. I remember in the early 90s, I would go to the East Coast Calvary Pastors Conference. Now, it was real small back then. It was upstate New York. Calvary had started in the West Coast. It migrated east. And there was only a handful of us. Back in those days... In between sessions, Chuck Smith would allow young men, most of them out on the mission field, five minutes to come up and tell their stories. And I used to sit there mesmerized. What guys were doing in the Ukraine and Poland, working in camps and prisons, and it was just awesome. And most of those guys became my colleagues. And I remember one day when Ken Graves, who's been to many sizzling summers, He was a young pastor like me, and he was in Maine, and he would share that Maine was like the end of the world as far as the gospel was concerned. But God had given them an open door of going on the radio. They had their own radio station in Bangor, Maine, and they had fought for years, and finally God had given them that open door, and Ken said, and only Ken would do this, he literally climbed the tower. It's hard to believe that this happens in our day. And he put together the two... Uh, prongs for the electric, and he said, war, war has started in Bangor, Maine. And those stories used to fuel me and fire me up. And we were a movement that was walking through open doors. The man who walked through the most open doors in the New Testament was the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul wanted to go to Asia, and he saw a man from Macedonia who said, Paul, come here. Come to the northern part of Greece. And of course that changed the course of human history as the gospel went to the western world. So we want to be a church that walks through open doors. 
Once we walk through those open doors, God gives us a vision for what we can accomplish. And I'll say this verse till the day I die, and maybe you can write it in your Bible. Where there is no vision, what happens? People perish. If a church doesn't have a vision on the wall, the people are going to perish. What does that mean? They're never going to see all they were intended to see. They're never going to see a move of God. They're never going to see 1,200 baptisms, people saved, atheists coming to faith. And be careful, because in your own life you might not see it. If you don't have a vision for your own life as a Christian, you're going to perish. You're going to be cutting the grass on Sunday morning like that guy I talked about two, two, two weeks ago. We need a God-honoring vision. Now, up on the screen, you'll see our 2020 vision. We got to this building in 2010 by God's grace. And a few years after that, God gave us a 2020 vision. In other words, 2020 is clear vision, and this was for the next five years. This was 2015 where we kind of launched this vision. Uh, by God's grace, in 2016, we built phase two. We thought that was a catalyst for some of the things we wanted to do. We took 300 people through ministry training and uh, really accomplished great things, started financial peace so we could get our finances in order as a congregation, as a people, and all that is done. 2017, we've talked about extension campuses. We think what we're doing right here, right now, needs to go further into Delaware County. We've talked about Ardmore, Havertown, that area. But also right now, we've got plans for a significant work. We'll talk about this at some other time. Right in the heart of Chester. We've been going to the Bronx and many of these other ministries for a long, long time. And by God's grace, we are very close to having a significant work in Chester. And again, I'll talk about that at some time. 2018, we'd like to see uh, a church planted in a gateway city. This comes out of our relationship with Nairobi Chapel. We're doing great things with Nairobi Chapel. But the greatest thing we want to do is take their leaders and our leaders and go to a city maybe like Amsterdam or Moscow or some city that needs the gospel and plant a church together. 2019, we like to start doing regional conferences. Now, we're doing three this year, but we like to do our own regional conference with our DNA. And then 2020, by 2020, that would be the latest, we like to see a classical Christian school, K-8, to on our campus. Now, how are we going to do this? Um, I've been talking to my staff for about nine months. That God has shared with me the three ways we're going to do it. Is number one, we have to reheat the value of evangelism. In any church, this goes to the back burner quick. Because we get real comfortable. Think the church in Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem had that wonderful community. Had they stayed there, they would have become just another sect of Judaism. In fact, we find out later, Paul, through Gentile churches, had to send them money. They weren't going. They weren't training. We've got to reheat the value of our people being engaged with lost people and bringing them to faith, and I'll talk more about that. We need a volunteer revolution. If we're going to have more people here, we're going to need more people serving and then we need to rethink weekends. It's one of the reasons we went back to two services. Uh, every church 
magazine you'll read says when you're 80% full in one service, you go to another. We've been 80% full in both services this whole year. But we're doing it strategically because we don't want to do three services anymore. So we're thinking Saturday night, Sunday night, extension campus, we're rethinking weekends. The second mark of an open door church, and I need everybody's attention here, everybody who calls Calvary their home, take great risks, emphasize the word risks, for reaching people far from God. The day of attractional ministry is over, if you know anything about what's going on in culture. The day of building, and they'll come. Even the day of teach the word, and they'll come. Pretty much over. you got to go where people are. And nothing's changed. Ephesians 4 says God has given us church leaders, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, to train up people for the work of the ministry, for the schools and the corporations and the places you go during the week. One of the things that blessed me about our one-day revelation where we had 300 people is we had scores of young people. We had college kids. We had, we had so many young people, and they didn't get here by chance. They were brought by friends. On May 20th, as you saw in the video, we're going to do clean sheets here on a Sunday. And I know there's going to be pushback from that. We've done clean sheets on a Friday and a Saturday. It's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my walk with Christ. It's a great story of redemption of Mio Khan. Dave Wiedis is her husband, who most of you know, teaches a lot of our Calvary campuses. It's a story of one woman's drug addiction and her path to find Christ. I remember Chuck Smith saying years ago, something ministers to you, do it. It'll minister to others. So we're going to do it. And the reason we're going to do it on a Sunday is twofold. When I prayed for people the last time we did it on Good Friday, I had a girl come up and say, I need prayer. And she was in her 20s. She looked professional. And I said, what do you need prayer for? She goes, I'm addicted to heroin. I'm like, what? You're addicted to heroin. You look like you're a professional, like, like you're living a normal life. She said, that's what heroin is. It, it affects everybody. There is a heroin epidemic in our country. And we have seen countless people ministered to by clean sheets. The pushback will be, well, we're not preaching. We're not doing this. We're not doing that. So let me take you back about 15 years. When I met Mike Rizal, a.k.a. the potter. When I saw Pottersfield, I said, we got to do that at our church. It was very hard to book Mike at that time. We were a small church. And I gave out an invitation and he agreed. I found out later the only reason he agreed is no churches were doing him on Sunday. We were one of the firsts. When we moved into this building from the other building, we had about 200 people here. I asked people, how did you get to Calvary? Number one, the radio. Number two, you know that guy who does pottery? Yeah. We took a risk. And we're going to take another risk. And for those of you who have seen clean sheets and say, oh, I'll take off that day, please don't. Please think of somebody you would invite. And just your presence here helps us. It really does. So we're excited about clean sheets. Another risk we're going to take is we're starting something called Christianity Explored, January 2018. 
Um, this is like the Alpha course, but meatier. And we had two board members look at Alpha and one look at Christianity Explored, and everybody agreed Christianity Explored was the way to go. Here's how it works. You find people, neighbors, friends, in your sphere of influence who you invite out to a common meal at the table and ask them to come to six sessions where Christianity will be explained to them. We'll eat a common meal. There's a video. Uh, this comes out of a church in London. And in London, because the gospel has kind of waned there, they've had to find things like this uh, to get people invigorated. And then at the end of Christianity Explored, you ask people to either make a decision for Christ or not make a decision. Uh, we've been talking to churches around the country. We're excited about it. We're going to need some of you to be table leaders. But this is something we're going to commit to for five years. And you'll hear more about it in the fall. And we'll launch it out in January of 2018. The third thing that open door churches do, and this is, I piggyback this with taking risk, is they have a firm adherence to the power of Scripture. We believe that we are creating a safe place, Calvary Chapel, for a very dangerous message. The dangerous message is, if you don't know Christ, you will go into a Christless eternity. And there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our message is, there's a God of grace who loves you, and he'll make your sins white as snow. But that involves repentance. The gospel of God's love is a gospel of grace. The Bible says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide between soul and spirit. It is the only catalyst for life change. It is the only thing that can change a human heart or a human mind. Everything else we do is wonderful as long as we believe that the word of God is supreme in changing people's lives. You all remember the parable of the sower, right? Jesus went out said there was a man who scattered seed. He's the great seed sower. Some fell on hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, and then some found on good ground, produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. You can look at that parable a thousand ways, but the seed of the gospel has to go into a human heart. If you look at it analytically, like some of you look at things, there is a seed to growth ratio. In other words, somebody who's analytic would say, you want to see more people saved? Sow more seed. Makes all the sense in the world, right? So that's what we're going to do. The next five years, we're going to sow a lot of seed and believe that God will bring in a harvest. Number four, open-door churches know every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. We're studying Hebrews on Sunday morning. We're learning that Jesus is greater because he's a greater high priest. Secondary, what we're learning is you are a priest and a king. Imagine some of you going to your relatives, telling them you're a priest now. <laughs> you're a priest, you're a king, you're a holy nation. When the church took the Bible away from people, when they said, no, there's a clergy and a lady, the church tanked. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation when they put the Bible back in the hands of people and said, you are ministers, the church exploded. When we do this, we unleash the power of everybody, and it's beautiful. 
In Hebrews it says, for by now, some of you ought to be teachers, yet you need someone else to teach you the first principles of Christ. I think the writer of Hebrews was quite sad. Because after about five years, you should have it if you're here. And then you step out of the pew, you jump in, and you begin to serve others. I met with a core group of ten guys Wednesday where we want to reboot men's ministry. And they call for the meeting. They're like, Bob, we love our group. We love what God's doing. We could do this for 20 years. You know why we're here? You know why we call the meeting? Because we all came in to a men's group and we found our way. And we feel like there's no place for new men to come in and find their way. And we want to do something for them. See, that's the heart of God. That's the heart of a priest. A priest wants to serve. He wants to see others grow. So we want to have a volunteer revolution. We want to unleash the power of everybody. The greatest strength we have is all of us, not our paid staff, not our high-end volunteers. The greatest strength we have is each and every one of you. So we're going to need everybody to jump in, everybody to do their part, everybody to find their spiritual gift if we're going to see live change. You know what's beautiful when people get involved? I love to see this progress. Somebody gets involved, they're scared, they're nervous, I can't do this. And they continue along the plane and somewhere in their experience they say, I can't believe we get to do this. I can't believe I get to see a teenager set free or somebody baptized or, you know, these great things God can do. Most people that go to the Bronx say this. We love, we serve, and we care for others because that is the normal behavior of people who are filled with God's Spirit. We are Christians. Christ was the ultimate servant, and we can't help but serve because the Spirit of the servant has filled our hearts. When we serve, we are just as natural as he was. That was his mission, not to be served, but to serve. So one of the things we're going to be asking you, we're asking Sizzling Summer, jump in somewhere. Jump in somewhere, someplace, and be a part of the power of everyone. And number five, I'll close with this. Open door churches rely on the whisper of the Holy Spirit. I look at this Philadelphia church. God gave them an open door. He said, you're small but you can do great things because I'm a big God. And then you can circle this. He said they were faithful. It's required of stewards they be faithful. You and I steward the gospel message. I don't care what you do for a living. One day you're going to give a count. You steward the gospel message. You steward finances. We are stewards. And all God is saying is I just want you to be faithful with what I gave you. The church of Philadelphia was small, but they were faithful. And God did great things. To be an open door church, we have to rely on the whispers of the Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? Can we hear His voice? Do we want to hear His voice? Are we looking for open doors? Are we looking for places and pockets where He wants to move? Everything we've ever done as a church that has succeeded, where we've seen great fruit, started on a whisper. 
I was walking around the parking lot one day. And I was thinking about our midweek a long time ago and how there was a malaise and how could we change it. And I had a staff meeting and people said, we'll change it from 7.30 to 7. And I'm like, yeah, that'll rock the world. People are watching Monday Night Football at 9 o'clock. Fights are at midnight. And then I heard this whisper, the East Coast, people like to be outside. How do we put church out on the lawn? And then God did the rest. This property was a whisper. And on and on it goes. And that's how God works. It's how he works in your life. If we're trained to hear his voice, he'll give you open doors. And every time you walk through an open door, it gets a little easier. Because you've been down that path with God. It's a little easier and a little easier and a little easier. The Church of Philadelphia was faithful to their call. They reached their redemptive potential. For us to reach our redemptive potential, we're going to hit evangelism hard. We're going to have a volunteer revolution. And we're going to see God take what we're doing here to other places. And those are the open doors he's given us. If God closes the door, great, we'll redirect. If he opens other doors, great. But we want to look for open doors. And the last thing we want to become is the church where Jesus said, you're dead, but you think you're alive, and you have a reputation that you're alive. It's where a lot of denominations have gone. That's where Calvary Chapel may wind up. Where we sit around and we talk about what God did in the 60s and what he did in the 70s. And in your life, you talk about what he did when you got saved. And there's no talk about now. You know what I tell people now when they ask me about church? These are the good old days. These are the good old days. Because these are the only days we have. And this is the day the Lord has made. And life is short. And we have to seize the day. Because the time is near.